look at 2 Kings chapter 19 with you all today. If you were with us last week, let me kind of set it up by talking about um, 2 Kings 18, which is leading to this story. If you remember, King Hezekiah is in Jerusalem with his Israelites and the king of Assyria has now made their way to Jerusalem and he is telling them, I am going to overthrow you. I am going to destroy the city. And he's just raining down threat after threat after threat at them. And we talked about how um, it was just a almost a good parallel of how Satan loves to work in our lives. And there's, there's three things that he's looking to do, making us, he's wanting us to believe that God is not all powerful. He wants us to believe that that, that we're completely hopeless in the situation that we're in. He wants us to think that he can provide us things that he really can't. We, we talked about all those and then how to attack that. So Hezekiah had heard all of these words, this threat from the, well, the spokesman of the Assyrian king, and he's looking at this army that is all around him, and he finds himself in a predicament. If you can imagine, put yourself in Hezekiah's shoes real quick. You've got this city of people. And you are in charge of this city of people, and you know there's a chance that you all might not be there in a week. <laughs> what are you going to do? I love what we see from Hezekiah over what we're going to see this week and then next week of his response when the king of Assyria is in front of him. Let's look at verses 1 through 7. When King Hezekiah heard their report, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the Lord's temple. He sent Eliakim, who was in charge of the palace, Shebna, the court secretary, and the leading priests who were covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. They said to him, this is what Hezekiah says, today is a day of distress, rebuke, and disgrace, for children have come to the point of birth, but there is no strength to deliver them. He's saying right there, basically, there's no way we can deliver ourselves from the people of Syria. Verse 4, perhaps the Lord your God will hear all the words of the royal spokesman whom his master, the king of Assyria, sent to mock the living God and will rebuke him for their words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, offer a prayer for the surviving remnant. So the servants of King Hezekiah went to Isaiah, who said to them, Tell your master, the Lord says this, Don't be afraid because of the words you have heard, with which the king of Assyria's attendants have blasphemed me. I am about to put a spirit in him, and he will hear a rumor and return to his own land, where I will cause him to fall by the sword. Now it's clear when you read the story that Hezekiah is in distress. He is in the middle of a trial. What is he going to do? Maybe you've heard the phrase said before that you're either going into the storm or you're in the middle of a storm or you're coming out of the storm. Some of us in here maybe feel like we've been in an endless storm for a long time. We wonder when it's ever going to end. It's hard. Trials are just a normal part of the Christian life. And it's interesting how we probably tell ourselves that we are ready for when the trial happens, that we're ready spiritually. You know, we've read the Bible verses. We've prepared ourselves for those times. But if you've ever been through a trial, you know that that just is not usually the case. You can say you're ready for the trial, but when it's in front of you, everything changes. I love the words of Mike Tyson where he said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. And it's true, right? You think you know what to do until everything begins to fall apart. 
And then you don't know what to do. See, normally what happens when we are blindsided by a trial is maybe we freeze or we panic or we get afraid or we run away from God instead of running to him. We've got, we've got examples of this in the Bible. How about Peter? Peter, who was just the, you know, gung-ho follower of Jesus, I'm, you know, tells Jesus, Jesus, I would never leave you. I will never deny you. And Jesus says, yeah, you are. And he's like, no, I won't. And then when they come to get Jesus in the garden, Peter's the one that pulls out his sword and either he has bad aim or he thinks going for the ear is a good thing. And he chops off the ear of the soldier. And that's who he was. He was ready to defend Jesus. But as soon as Jesus was taken away, what did Peter do? He ran. And then he maybe followed close behind. And then when Jesus was on trial, three different times, he denies Jesus. In the middle of his storm, in the middle of the trial, he thought he was going to be strong, but he wasn't. Why? Why are storms so hard? And in the storm, what are we supposed to do? Well, in the passage that we're going to look at, we're not necessarily given a step-by-step plan for what to do when we encounter a trial. In fact, I would say that I don't know if giving you a step-by-step plan would be helpful because every trial is different. Every storm is different. But what we do find in this passage is we, we see how Hezekiah looks beyond himself in order to make it through a difficult time. That's my goal for us tonight. That as we study this passage, we would be able to learn how to look beyond ourselves to our Lord. So what do we do when we are faced by a trial? Three things. We'll do it quickly tonight. First of all, you must humble yourself. In a trial, you must humble yourself. Look how this starts. It says, when King Hezekiah heard their report, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the Lord's temple. Hezekiah's response could have been to rise up the army in charge of the king of Assyria. Sometimes that's our response in a storm, isn't it? I know it's a tornado raging outside, but I'll take my chances. And so you just get yourself and run. I'm going to do this. That's not what Hezekiah does. What does he do? He doesn't meet him, meet this spokesman who's screaming blasphemy with weapons, but he meets him with tears and sackcloth. He says he tears his clothes and puts on a sackcloth. This was in the Old Testament. It was a sign of mourning, of grief and loss. In fact, Jewish people still do that today when they are in mourning and in grief. And why does he feel this way? He feels this way because he is staring at an an army who is also then staring down his city and it seems as though all hope is lost. Imagine how he feels. So as he puts that sackcloth on, what Hezekiah is saying in the moment is that his heart is desperate for God because God is the only one that can help him. See, we have to learn something from this. When we find ourselves in the middle of the storm, We have to then come to a point where we realize that we are not sufficient enough to fix the problem and only God is the one who can fix the problem. You've got to get to this place of humility. You're not going to be enough in it. You need someone bigger. Russell Dilday, who is a former president of uh, one of our seminaries, he tells a story. Now, just let you know, this is a pretty emotional story, but there's a point here at the end of this. He was in New England visiting a family that used to be in his church when he pastored a church in the South. He said he showed up at their house excited to see this family that he hadn't seen in a while, but when he opened the door, he was greeted by something he never thought that he would see. And that was that the 
parents were distraught because just 24 hours before he got there, that family's eight-year-old daughter had been kidnapped from the playground across the street from their house. The only evidence of this was a doll and a tennis shoe that was found near the swing set on this playground. So the parents were doing everything they knew to do. They're frantic. They're trying to keep the phone lines open just in case a kidnapper calls them. They're, they're, they're talking with the police, trying to navigate what to do. During the week, they began to put together all of their um, the friends and support groups to go out and searching for their daughter. They're doing news shows, radio shows, all of these things, appealing for her release or information that could, ha- that could help. But nothing would seem to work. They never heard anything. And weeks later, they found the body of the daughter in a field. The search was over, but the grief for their daughter was not. Dilde said that the testimony of that, that daughter's father in the middle of that trial, that storm, that search for her daughter was something that is stamped on his brain. He said this father was a brilliant executive, a leader of a computer firm, had all the money, had all the resources in the world, but he was broken. And as they waited for some word to come around them, he offered these words on the news one day. He said, all my life, I have been trained to solve problems and I'm good at it. Just give me the data and with the help of the computer, I can analyze those data and come up with solutions to the problem. But this problem just doesn't compute. All my training and professional experience are useless. It's like I was back in kindergarten again trying to learn my ABCs. And he says, I'm as helpless as if I'd never learned anything. He went on to say that the only thing that was left when he sifted through all of his assets, his professional, intellectual, material, all those assets, the only thing that was left was his faith in God. The only thing that he could hold on to was that he worshiped a good God. And and he said this to Russell Dilday. He said, in fact, I wonder this, how in the world do people face a crisis like this when they do not know God? What do you have left? His father had to come to a place complete humility in this trial and when we are in the middle of a storm when we are in the middle of a trial we have to humble ourselves and say this I can't do this and after we admit our insufficiency we are then to turn our eyes to the only one who can sustain us through it and the only one who can work all things together for our good and for his glory that's our only response in the trial what do you have to do you have to humble yourself second of all in the trial what do you have to do you have to lean on God's people. And the end of verse 1 into verse 2, it says that Hezekiah went into the temple. He sent down Eliakim, who was in charge of the palace, Shebna, the court secretary, and the leading priests, who were covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. What is Hezekiah, what is his response? The first thing he does with his feet is he goes straight to the temple and he goes straight to his friends, the other leaders there. And he says this, I need you to go and get Isaiah the prophet. I love this. Hezekiah realized in the moment what he did not need was politicians or princes or advisors. He didn't need war councils or military strategists or fortune tellers. He needed God's people and a word from God's prophet. He knew that was the only thing that could sustain him. Brothers and sisters, it's, this, it's true for us as well. We, here's, here's, here's what happens in our lives. When we get in the middle of the storm, in the trial, our natural temptation is to move towards isolation, to move away from others. We begin to internalize our pain. 
And then that internalization causes us to step back from maybe Sunday school. And then we step back then from gathering with our brothers and sisters on Sunday morning. And then we step back from all of our friends. That happens because a lie becomes implanted in our brains that says this, that no one could possibly understand what it is that we're going through. No one can understand this pain. It's way too much. Therefore, what I'm going to do is close myself off from those around me and just suffer alone. Listen to me, that is a recipe for disaster when you're in the middle of the storm. And it's exactly what Satan wants to happen. Remember last week, his goal for you is to feel hopeless and alone. Because when you're hopeless and alone, he knows that he has complete access to you and do whatever he wants to do. I also mentioned a book last week called The Screw Tape Letters. I don't know if you all remember that. Is just a refresher for those who weren't here. The Screwtape Letters was written by C.S. Lewis in kind of a dramatization of what it would be like if a demon was trying to enact spiritual warfare on a Christian. This is not a true story. It's not scripture, okay? But I think it's a good idea to help us understand spiritual warfare. Well, in chapter 9 of that book, Screwtape, who is the leader demon, is talking to Wormwood, who's like his protege demon, and he's advising Wormwood on how to take advantage of troughs. Anybody, so we think of a trough like a, um, something that animals would eat out of, but another, trough, another idea of a trough is like the valley between two mountains. We've all probably been in that valley before, haven't we? The time of hardship. And so, so he's trying to teach Wormwood how to take advantage of those times of hard, hardship when they're in the middle of the trough. And Screwtape says this, that the best thing that Wormwood could do is convince the patient, his person he's tempting, that the trough is not temporary, but that it's going to last forever. That there's no way out of the valley. You're going to be in the valley for the rest of your life. And the screw tape tells him this, that he could then, if he can convince him that the trough is forever, then he can also convince him that he's going to live his life in isolation. And why does he want to convince him that this is how his life is going to be? It says, because once he has been convinced that the trough is permanent, he can then be persuaded that his positive religious phase was indeed just a phase. Do you see that? If I can help them see that there's no way out, and I can help them see that there's no one around them, then I can convince them that maybe God really isn't real. Maybe he cannot care for me. How many people do we know that have walked away from the faith because of a trial that they are in? Almost everybody that I know that's walked away because of something that's happened to them, it's usually come after a period of time of isolation from the church and from other Christians. Because in that time of isolation, what can be convinced of you is that you have no one. Can I ask you this? When you were in the midst of a trial, one of the most, if, I, just, if you could do this, that you could decide to draw closer to God's people instead of away from God's people, to lean every bit of your weight on them. Why? Because as brothers and sisters, we are called to carry each other's burdens. We're called to help support one another. Lean completely on them. Yesterday, um, we know that we had what we thought was going to be the second flood on planet Earth. Uh, I, didn't think, I didn't think it was ever going to stop. In fact, there was four ways to get to my house. Three of them were flooded except for one, and I didn't know if I was going to make it home at one point. It was just all the roads were that bad. Well, because the weather was going to be happening like that, they canceled school. That meant that my boys were going to be home yesterday, and nonstop rain 
outside plus cancellation of school usually does not put together a really good day for mom. And so we begin to navigate what in the world can we do for the boys that just keeps them from, you know, beating each other up or destroying the house by the end of the day. Well, we noticed that Tuesdays is $6 Tuesdays at Epic Theater. I don't know if you've ever taken advantage of that. So Sarah said, I'm going to do that. I'm going to take them to a movie. That's two and a half hours or whatever that they are out of the house and they can have some fun. So they went to see a movie called Migration. Maybe you've seen some um, previews of this movie. It's about a group of birds who are obviously migrating south. I don't know. Is it ducks? or I, Yeah, ducks. Okay, they're trying to migrate south. Well, as they came home, the boys were telling me about the movie, and last night, Sarah told me a story about something that happens in the movie that I thought was just incredible. She said that in the process of the migration, the, the son and daughter duck get separated from mom and daddy duck, and they're on their own, trying to migrate south. Well, also in the middle of this, the son duck gets his feather stepped on, and he cannot fly anymore. They're stuck He's angry, he's frustrated, he's upset, he, he just wants to be alone, and his sister's trying to encourage him, but he's just not having any of it. There's no hope. Mom and dad are gone, I cannot fly, we are stuck. So then the big sister comes up to him and says, I know exactly what you need. She then takes her wings out wide and then wraps them around her brother and squeezes as tight as she possibly can. All the while, the little brother is pushing away as hard as he can, just angry that the sister would actually be trying to hug him. And in the middle of this, as she's holding on, she looks at her brother and says, is it helping? <laughs> and he's angry, look on his face, and, she, and he looks at her and says, no. And to which she responded, she paused for a moment, then she responds, well, it just hasn't kicked in yet, is what she says. She keeps holding on to him. Here's why I tell you that story. Maybe some of you are in here today and you're in the middle of a trial and you are trying to lean on God's people. You're trying to stay connected, but you feel nothing. <laughs> the pain is still there. Can I ask you this? Do not let go. It could be that it just hasn't kicked in yet. Do not let go of God's people because the alternative is not hope. The alternative is not something that's beneficial for your soul. The alternative is something that is more and more isolation, more hurt. Please get yourself around God's people. Let them bear the bur burdens with you. Which leads us to the last point tonight, and that is this. You must lean on God's people, but second of all, you need to ask God's people to pray. Isaiah... Um, Hezekiah is communicating to his people what to say to Isaiah. And it says this, that perhaps the Lord your God will hear all the words of your royal spokesman, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God and will rebuke him for the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, offer a prayer for the surviving remnant. Hezekiah sends his friends to Isaiah, the priest, and in that he confesses just the humiliation and powerlessness of the nation but he also holds out hope that God heard the words of the one who was just blaspheming God and that, that he would respond and, and punish him. But then he goes to Isaiah and he says, Isaiah, pray for us. Please just pray for us. Why does he do that? Because Hezekiah realizes something that we need to realize today, and that is that God hears the prayers of his people. He hears the prayers of his people. Why would we ask others to pray for us? James chapter 5, verse 16 is a very interesting verse. 
It says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Look, the prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. What is powerful? Our prayers. God uses them. I saw one way today that God uses prayers. For years, I've been praying that the Lord would lead Nick Saban to retire as the head coach of the University of Alabama football. And for years, he has said, not yet. I've said, Lord, I'll be patient. Today, he answered that prayer. (laughs) And today, I am happy. I'm just kidding. Please don't call me a heretic for saying that. But I am happy, I'll tell you that. So uh, it is a good day. I will sleep like a baby. But uh, pray for my brother, though, as an Alabama fan. He is struggling today. I'll go throw an arm around him later. Uh, Now, look, if God's prayer, if prayers of people, if God uses our prayers and prayers are powerful, if that's the case, then our prayers for others, our requests should be our first response, not our last response, right? If this is a way to communicate with the God of the universe, if we know that God's going to work through the people around us, why would we not go to them first about these things? You see, prayer is not just some addition in the service that allows the band and orchestra to get on the stage and off the stage. It's not just a way to appease God in heaven. It's not just something that we do so we don't choke our food down when we're eating dinner. That's not what prayer is, no. Prayer is an encounter with the God of the universe who is all-powerful and desires to work in your life. That's what prayer is. Tony Evan explains it this way. He said, prayer is how we make contact with what God has already decreed. Prayer does not make God do what he hasn't planned to do. No, prayer releases God to do what he has decreed to do. Where there is no prayer, there is no contact. And where there is no contact, you will not get what God has declared for you to have. Think of it like this. Think of prayer kind of like electricity in your house. Every one of us, I'm assuming, have electricity run to our house, and there's enough electricity in our house to power every single appliance that we have. In fact, you can plug up the stove, the refrigerator, the TV, the microwave, all of those things all at one time. Can you not? You know, don't overload the system on one, but the understanding is, is that you can plug all those things up at once. But here's the thing. Until you plug the appliance into the socket, the electricity isn't going to do anything for you, is it? You can have all the electricity in your house, but until you plug your stove up into the wall, you're not going to be able to cook anything in it. But as soon as you plug that stove into the wall, that heat comes on like that. Here's why I say this. Could it be, could it be today that you're stuck in the middle of your trial because you have a bunch of people in the church with wires in their hands and you've never asked them to plug it in? Your God has given you the people of God around you who every one of us have access to the Heavenly Father. If that's so, then why would we not allow the prayers of the people around us to be our first response, our first ask from them, and not our last? Last, I ask you this, are you seeking the prayers of God's people in your crisis? You see, there is power in prayer because it does connect us to an all-powerful God who has all the power we'll ever need. And because that's so, here's what I ask. I would ask then that we would be a church that commits to praying for others and asking for others to pray for us. Now, the conclusion, and we're done. The question then is, does God answer Hezekiah's request? In fact, yes. Isaiah provides Hezekiah with a powerful promise about what's going to happen to the king of Assyria. Look at verse 7. 
He says, I'm about to put a spirit in him and he will hear a rumor and return to his own land where I will cause him to fall by the sword. So the question for us is then, is this going to come true? I guess we'll just have to wait and see as we get to chapter 20. Spoiler alert, it does come true so you already know or you can go read it later on. Hey, let me just say, if you're here today and you're struggling, maybe the first step that you need to take today is to come and talk to one of us. Allow us to pray for you and get you connected to some of God's people so they can plug in to the power of our God. Let's pray together. God, we love you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your scriptures. Father, storms are hard. They beat us down. But Father, let us always remember that we are standing on the solid rock of your son. That we always have access to you. So when the trial comes our way, God, let us humble ourselves, ask you for help, and then lean on God's people around us. We love you and we thank you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.